0: Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today we speak with husband and wife actors Kevin and Sam Sorbo. Kevin, who is now also an author, speaker, and director, came to fame by playing legendary hero Hercules on the long-running series Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. He met his wife Sam, an actress, writer, and radio show host, when she did a guest appearance on the show. Together, they are passionate about spreading a positive message to others through the medium of film and sharing their faith along the way. They discuss their newest film, Let There Be Light, which is now available on DVD, and they also talk about their commitment to God and to each other through the good times and the tough times.
1: Hi, I'm Sam Sorbo. And I am Kevin Sorbo, and um, hello.
2: You probably know him from Hercules, and also Andromeda, and maybe... Many of his movies, like God's Not Dead and Let
1: There Be Light. That's right. I, um, I grew up in a little town called Mound, Minnesota, which is about 25 miles west of Minneapolis on the beautiful shores of Lake Minnetonka. And we were home in a little town of 7,000 people. We were home to Tonka Toys. Get it? Lake Minnetonka. Tonka Toys. And uh, I'm the fourth of five kids. All five of us went to the same school system. My dad was a 7th um, a and 8th grade math and biology teacher at the junior high school there and um, grew up just loving, loving sports, playing a lot of sports. I was a football, basketball, baseball guy. fell in love with golf at an early age. Cause my dad was a, uh, was also in the summers, worked at a golf course, um, grew up in a, in a Lutheran home, wonderful parents, uh, lived up, grew up in a really great neighborhood. I mean, just really just, they I was very lucky to yeah. grow up. Cause really all of my friends are all her friends now too. Um, I don't know it's just I was very fortunate to, to, to go back. Uh, we go back every summer.
2: That's not my story.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I uh, I grew up. Uh, we started in uh, New Rochelle, then we moved, uh, then we moved again. We we moved several times. Um, I grew up in an atheist household uh, and uh, extremely liberal. Um, and so, in my twenties, I went on a search for meaning, basically purpose. Uh, i became I had become established in my in my craft and uh, in my career, and so I needed some something more. And I discovered that there was a God in the universe, uh, basically because there is order in the universe. And once I had determined that God existed, I went searching for him in places of worship, worship, and I ended up at a church, which is where I became a Christian.
1: I was eleven years old when we went to the Guthrie Theatre, which is a very famous theater in Minneapolis. And I saw The Merchant of Venice, it was Shakespeare. And I was mesmerized. I didn't understand what they were saying because it was <laughs> Shakespeare. But I was, I was blown away by uh, what I was watching on stage. And I told my mom on the way home, I said, you know, mom, I'm 11 now, remember? So I said, mom, I think I'm, I'm gonna be an actor. And she said, that's nice, dear. That's nice, dear. And, um, but it wasn't really until I got into college when I really started going after it and paying attention to it. And, I double major in marketing, advertising, but I minored in drama and uh, I, I, I loved it, I mean that's what I really wanted to do and I sort of had a side track to my life where um, I started dating someone other than her because she was way down the road before I met her and she was a model and she said, come to Europe with me and just spend three months before you move to Los Angeles. An uh, the agent there said, well you should model too and I was like, ah, I don't know, and then, but they got me going and I actually, it was a different kind of success of hers. Because I was more, I was more of the jock guy, and I was so much bigger. I'm six three, and all these other guys were five eleven and five ten. And so I got all these athletic gigs, these really good. You know, I got to go to the Bahamas and do stuff there, and go in the middle of the desert, the Sahara desert, and it was really, it was interesting to me. I mean, I ended up living in Europe for three and a half years, so it was quite a huge sidetrack to my life, but. It wasn't fulfilling because I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, so I really got sidetracked a lot with when I thought at 22 years old I'm heading straight <laughs> to LA, and I finally get out there at almost I was almost uh, 27 years old at the time. So I started pursuing the career kind of late, but um, commercial world was great to me. Did a lot of commercials and started getting guest spots on shows, and then of course along came Hercules and. Uh, what was going to just be 5 to two-hour movies turned into seven years on a one-hour TV show, and we passed Baywatch as most-watched show in the world, and then went straight from there to Andromeda, and then I just, it just sort of, I, I got lucky, I had a lot of good success, and very fortunate.
2: I loved acting. I always wanted to be an actor, but I, I sprouted a little bit early, so in high school I was always taller than all of the guys, especially the guys in drama club because. The football players didn't, uh, didn't come over to drama club <laughs> mm. or drama class for that matter. Uh, and so um, I struggled to get cast for things and the, the, the mantra was don't become an actor because you can't be successful. Mm. And so I went to Duke University and I studied biomedical engineering. And I took some time off while I was at Duke uh, to, uh, I, I needed to take time off because it was so stressful. And I ended up going over to Europe and modeling for a year, and I was um, very successful with that. And it also opened up the door back to uh, becoming an actor. Uh, And so eventually that's what I did. I modeled for several years, and then I went into acting and uh, found success, and got cast on a little show called Hercules, which at the time was the number one show in the world, and went down to New Zealand, and um, well, I played a princess. (laughs) <laughs> That's how we
1: met. When I finally did talk into our first date, I went to pick her up at the hotel she was staying at. And uh, um, she gets in the car, and I had a country music station on And she says, oh, you like country music? And I said, yeah, I do. I said, do you, I mean, you can change it if you want. I mean, it's only country music station in all of New Zealand. She goes, no, no, I like it. I like it. I said, oh, cool. Went to the restaurant, started talking. I said a few things. She said, wait a minute, are you... um?" You conservative, and I said, Yes, I am. And we kind of laughed about being conservatives in Hollywood and what that's like. And then we talked a little more, and she said, Hold on, are you are you Christian? And I said, Yes, I am a Christian. So she said, A Christian conservative, any like country music, the three C's. I think I'm in love with you. So that's kind of how that first date went, which was pretty pretty funny.
2: When I went down to shoot Hercules, I was actually a little concerned that I was shooting another show with a stuck up, good looking. Male actor, uh, there there are plenty. <laughs> and when I met Kevin, the first time I met him, I could tell that he was ex- exceedingly genuine. Uh, he's he's a Minnesota guy, you know. Uh, he's down to earth. Uh, he wasn't at all stuck up, which which was a shock to me because he was a very good looking guy and he was shooting the number one show in the world. And so uh, that in part is why I fell in love with him. Um, the show, seeing the responses of people, because I saw some of those letters that were coming in that, that were so profound, really.
1: It was interesting what happened with Hercules. I knew by the third movie, we had something special. Um, this was a show, it certainly wasn't a faith-based series, but it was a series that had a lot of positive messages in there, and Hercules, the character I played, was a really good role model. Uh, we reached 176 countries. It's still in 60 countries today. It's on Netflix. It's on a couple cable outlets. Um, it's crazy how it's just it's just keep going and going and going. And there's a whole new generation of, of kids that are watching it now. A lot of them probably from their parents that are now you know in their 30s that were I hate to admit it, but I mean you know we shot the show from 1993 to the end of '99, and uh, to the letters I would get that come in from. You know, from orphanages, from people that had rough family lives, saying that I was their role model, I was their, their make-believe father. That your character taught
2: them not to give up. And yeah, to, the character was and don't fight be,
1: first. But yeah, it right. was just a lot of not strong and, yeah. moral messages in there, and, and to, to stick by your values and stick by what you believe is good and right. And uh, to have kids want to do that. I had three kids come down, they were Make-A-Wish kids. And I think every time I just broke down, I remember the first time, it was just brutal for me. Because I'm going, why are you picking me? I didn't say that to the kid, of course. But, you know, of all the things in the world, and I'm your wish, and it, was, it was overwhelming to me. And um, it was an honor at the same time, but I just, I guess I didn't feel worthy with it.
2: I don't think that he even realized the impact that his show had. And that's why, you know, Make-A-Wish Kid comes down there, and he's, he's not seeing the, the, prof- the, the broad spectrum, really. Um, and so that was, that was sort of an eye-opening experience for both of us, really, um, to see. And TV Guide, what did the TV Guide guy say? That was the, that was it was the a, one show the one that our family. family watches
1: yeah. together, and this came from the editor from the TV Guide who sent me a letter, and he also wrote it in the TV Guide, which I thought was pretty amazing.
2: When I started acting in in um, L.A., I, I joined an acting class, and the the coach at the acting class said in his first interview before I joined the class, he said, "So why do you want to act?" And before I could even really think the words sort of flew out of my mouth. I want to change the world. And I mean, that was such a ridiculous thing to say. And yet now, uh, several years later, of course, I realized that what I meant was storytelling profoundly impacts people. That's why mm-hmm. Jesus spoke in parables, is so that we could take his story uh, in, the, in the real world, his story from the spiritual world and apply it in the real world. And, it, and of course he was tremendously impactful and that's what I was—that's what I was meaning. And so, um, witnessing the 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 impact that the Hercules series had on people, well, I it's, guess sort it's of such a powerful fulfilling. medium
1: yeah. in, in right. television, movies, all of that. And and we see it in our culture today. We see what the what the, the secular message that uh, Hollywood puts out there in so many of its TV shows and movies. And um, you know it does affect people and changes people, yeah. and that they, we don't allow them, let them think for themselves in a way. So to me, it's like I, w- I want to send out messages that that have a positive and, and uplifting, uplifting, moralistic sort of value yeah. to
2: them. One thing I'll say is before we got married, uh, in my head, I was trying to figure out the balance between my career, which was going very well. i guest starred for half a season on Chicago Hope, which was a very big show, national network show. Um, and I was, you know, booking more and more uh, work. And right before I'd met Kevin, I had to, I had already determined I wanted to be married. I wanted to get married. That's what I, I wanted. And um, I had realized that there was going to have to be a compromise and I had said a prayer to God, can you can you at least tell me what the compromise is? I understand there's a compromise. What is it going to be? And um, then I met Kevin, and he was perfect. He was there was no he was. I'm he, not perfect for me <laughs> for me. <laughs> okay, he was perfect. That's amazing. I I I met the perfect guy, and I still don't know what the compromise is. So I'm just going to go full steam ahead. And then he got sick. He he had three strokes. He nearly died. He was. Uh, incapacitated, uh, really incapacitated, um, could barely get up off the couch. Uh, and, and when he was in intensive care, I booked a national network television spot for ice cream, which is like my favorite thing. This was like a dream job. It was worth a lot of money. It was a big deal. Uh, they were going to fly me to New York for three days to shoot it. And I went into the intensive care unit and I stood at the foot of his bed and I said, I booked, that uh, ice cream commercial that I auditioned for. And he said, Congratulations. And I said, They want me to fly to New York tomorrow for three days. Uh, are you, would you like me to not go? Which put him mm. in the unenviable position of having to admit that he needed me. And so I was faced with a binary choice, really the love of my life or my career. And I th- literally, in the intensive care room, I just looked up at the heavens and I said, Oh, that's easy done and i chose my marriage and my husband and that whole thing over my career
1: we were at the end of season five on the series and sam and i had known each other for a little over a year by this point point. Yeah. and i was having all kinds of problems with my left arm i couldn't figure what was going on i'm doing most of my own stunts i'm working 14-hour days i'm i'm lifting weights anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours every single day on top of the 14-hour day on set And uh, I was always doing my, you know, getting bumps and bruises and cuts and sprains or whatever by doing all these stunts because we had three fight scenes every single episode. My ego wanted me to do the fights and I wanted to do them. And so I blew it off. I blew off this pain in my shoulder and this numbness in my fingers. I finally went to see um, a doctor who found a lump way up here in my uh, left shoulder, left subclavicle. And he said that he wanted to do a biopsy on it. And that kind of freaked me out. Uh, it's a biopsy. You know, I'm Hercules I'm a healthy guy. Come on, leave me alone. And then I went to see a chiropractor as I'm laying on the, on the table, the chiropractor, I heard a voice inside my head said, don't let me crack your neck. And I thought, well, that's weird. He's never cracked my neck. Cause this guy I've been seeing for eight years. He knows I don't like my neck cracked. I mean, I hate it. I've never liked it. So he's always left it alone. The voice said again, with more urgency, don't let him crack your neck. While I'm arguing with his voice, he cracks my neck. And that lump ended up being an aneurysm that had been spitting off blood clots into my left arm. That crack of the neck, because it was so close up to the artery feeding the brain, threw three clots into my brain. And I guess I'm lucky where they went. They went to my balance center and um, uh, vision. Uh, actually, there was a fourth one that went to my um, speech. She heard the voice, and she rushed me to the hospital. I that she used. To, yeah, you heard the way I was yeah, talking. I saw
2: him stroke right in front of me.
1: I couldn't do the next movie I had lined up for myself because they were, they were Universal was gearing me up to become their next new action guy to fill in for you know where Arnold Schwarzenegger was tailing off, so it was it was brutal for me to uh, to go through this and to have it happen to me and you go through that why God why 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 is this happening to me, and we wrestled a lot you know and I prayed a lot yet I, I just I remember one one night um, crawling myself up to the top of the apartment complex that we were at and uh, looking at the moon, and I, I wept. I felt like somebody had passed away, somebody had died, and it was a long journey for me. Uh, as Sam says, you know, she goes, you had faith, but you never needed it until now, and now I understood what she said. It was years later, because um, it took me three years to fully recover. It was a long road, and it was a tough road, and um, uh, there were a lot of prayers in there. There was a, a lot of frustration. Um, Sam all said, you know, she said, she gave me a mantra to look in the mirror and say, I want you to say I'm getting better, I'm getting stronger, and say it every day until you believe it for that day. And, uh, but it's also tough love, because she just said, you know, it happened, what are you going to do about it? You know, how are you going to deal with it? And I realized I had to sort to take things under control in my own way and say, okay, God, let's get through this, let's fight through this.
2: He was in intensive care, and they had discovered the aneurysm, and they were treating it mm-hmm. with uh, an angio going... From his groin up into his shoulder, and so he was. They had just brought him out of the operating room. Um, I guess maybe they had just inserted it, or they just went to to look at it again. Uh, that was probably mm-hmm. it. And I'm 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 not entirely sure. He might have reacted to the dye, or it might have just been uh, what became mm-hmm. what we what we eventually learned were panic and anxiety attacks. But he kind of went into sort of a shock, and he started shivering uncontrollably. The entire bed was shaking. Uh, if he jerked any which way, he wasn't allowed to move in the bed. He wasn't allowed to sit up for the days that he was in the, oh. the intensive care, and so he was shivering uncontrollably. And if something came loose, if he if he cut himself in any way, or or the tube got pulled, he would bleed out. He would just bleed out and die. There there was no way to stop the blood basically, and he was shivering. And the nurse, a male nurse in the in the intensive care, said. We got to get him back into the OR stat, or we'll lose him. So I ran down to the to the payphones, and I called his um, GP, who had who had been supervising his care, uh, and I said, "This is what just happened." And the GP said, "Sam, there's nothing I can do from here." So I just started praying, and I walked back to the intensive care unit. Kind of trepidatious, wondering what I was going to find when I got back there. And uh, they had resolved it. They—I don't even—they told me that they had just given him some Benadryl, which I'm—I'm I'm not sure if I heard them correctly or if if that it was that simple or what. But they had resolved it, and he was okay. But
1: she was hugely instrumental for true strength to get made because I didn't want to show uh, how weak I'd become. Yeah, the male yeah. ego, is, is a, as all men, men know, we um, were very insecure, very, very, very um, protective of letting people see weakness in us. And certainly me as an actor that's a visible actor playing a guy that's 6'3", 230 pounds of muscle, uh, it was a tough road for me to have to go through. But True Strength came out in 2012 and it's been a blessing. I do about a dozen to 15 speaking events a year whether it's you know in, in medical places or motivational Neurology, places or yeah. neuro, whatever it may be, um, and I've had people that have come up with car crash survivors, heart attack, stroke yeah. cancer, whatever it may be, saying your book has, has made me stop feeling sorry for myself you I just got two emails in the last three days from people through my website. All these years later they still keep coming through saying, um, I'm not angry anymore. I'm not angry at God and I'm not I'm not, I'm not upset. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And I went back to New Zealand four months after the Strokes, believe it or not, but I went from a 12 to 14 hour workday to one hour day. They wanted to keep the show going. It was a big cash cow for the studio. And quite frankly, um, for me, I needed it. I needed to find some kind of hope in my life. I needed to find that light at the end of a very long and dark tunnel. I needed to feel like, okay, I'm going to beat this thing. I'm not going to let this thing destroy me. And uh, it, it gave me hope. And that's why I think we're all searching for that. And I had to pray a lot about why this happened to me. And eventually I did find the reasons behind it because it wasn't that I'm like, I was a bad person and I was doing evil work. And I, I, I thought Hercules always had, like I mentioned, really good messages and good values to it. Um, but it opened a door for me that I never thought I'd go down. It opened a couple doors for me that I thought I'd never go down. I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing with these, uh, with these speaking events and the movies I'm doing now, and I, I love it. And that was really um, a God thing. There's yeah. no question.
2: I had the idea for "Let There Be Light" because, you know, I'm raising my children as Christians in an increasingly secular world, and mm. our their faith, my faith, uh, is challenged often, uh, every day. And and I just, I got to the point where I I thought, I wonder what it would be like for an atheist to have his faith challenged. And so I developed that idea. The world's greatest atheist has a near-death experience and sees something that just doesn't jive with his worldview. And he has to reconcile that with all of his previously held beliefs. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, hey, now this is a movie that I'd like to see. So I approached Dan Gordon, who's a very well-known Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote The Hurricane with Denzel Washington, Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner. And uh, he's a
1: showrunner on Highwood Heaven. Yeah, with Michael, with Michael Landon, Landon yeah.
2: and, and he's an acquaintance. But I knew that in order to get a film made in Hollywood, it had to have a name attached to it, a, a, a recognizable name. And so I reached out to him and asked him if he would write uh, this idea that I, I had, I had an idea for a screenplay, would he consider writing it with me? And of course he said, no. <laughs> But he did say, he's you he's know, a big
1: time writer. Yeah. <laughs> it's Like, well, no, I don't need you
2: and your silly ideas. But when he heard the idea, he jumped in with both feet because he recognized that we would be writing a script about really about the human condition, about wrestling with faith, mm-hmm. uh, it, which is something that everybody does. So we went into production almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Dan said that Dan said to me, well, you have to play Katie. And I was like, really? And he said, oh, absolutely, this should be a family affair and you should cast your boys in it. And I said, no, 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 no hold up, hold up. Because uh, I didn't want to put my children in the, in the position of being uh, criticized for having been cast just because they were Sorbo children.
1: Yeah, because it's never happened in Hollywood before where people cast f- friends or family members. Yeah, but it's,
2: it's sort of, you know, it's I looked upon scans had, and well, I know, not I was sure. A, no, yeah, but, they,
1: but they've been taking classes for three years, and they're, they're good actors, but uh, so we, did audit, we, we auditioned them. We auditioned them,
2: and yeah. they actually blew us away. And, I mean, uh, they're,
1: they're coming up to me by the third, fourth, and fifth days. Crew's going, the kids are kind of acting you off the page. You better start working <laughs> up, pick, <laughs> pick it up a little bit, you know, so... Uh, then the movie came out Yeah. this we're past fall. On October
2: 27th, last fall. And
1: uh, so we're you know, we're small independent film, and we started in about 380 screens or so, yeah. and worked our way to 800 screens. And the first two weeks out, up against Thor, up against Star Wars, yeah. we were the number two per screen average movie. Once again, reinforcing the fact that there's a lot of people out there that want to see movies that have a solid message, values, um, characters that they can relate to, yeah. Because the movie will make you cry, it will make you laugh, it will make you cheer, and it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. And now it just came out on DVD, and you can get it at Walmart or Amazon as well. Yeah, I mean it's out there, and it's it's been amazing.
2: The movie is about basically bringing people together in understanding, rather than tearing people apart, which seems to be the uh, a very strong message in our media right now. Um, this divisiveness yeah. that's that's the crept hate, into anger, our culture. And, uh, and then not only that, they would go and find us on the web and email either Kevin or me or the movie's website, Let there um, to tell us how profoundly affected they were, how uplifted they were. Um, you know I, I basically, the idea was to give people hope. And I think that's really the, the underlying message of the movie, and that's what it accomplished. And so we're very proud of it.
1: We do want to get these movies out there to people, but we need your help uh, to get the word out there. We need pastors and churches to to support these movies.
2: We need messaging that uplifts people, that gives them hope and that makes them root for a good guy and to, to aspire themselves to become better people. Isn't that what our culture, isn't that what we should want? Isn't that what we should want from our society, is for people to do good for others?
1: I think people need to start realizing that uh, God is a pretty important element to, uh, to happiness in your life and to stability and, and to being calm in your life and not being so, so impatient and angry all the time.
2: Yeah. I think that we need to incorporate God into our everyday lives. You know, we talk about people who go to church on Sunday, and then the rest of the week, it almost doesn't count. The church should be the culture, right? that we should bring our faith back into the culture. I believe that very strongly and partly because the culture has become so anti-faith and what that does is that removes hope. That's what that does and we need hope again and we have hope. The good news is there is hope. There's hope in the cross.
0: Kevin and Sam's new movie Light of the World is available wherever DVDs are sold. To find out more about what new films and projects Kevin and Sam have coming up, please visit them at either kevinsorbo.net or samsorbo.com. We'll be back with the second half of our podcast after this brief message from Audible. As a special offering to you, the listeners of The Jesus Calling Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Find your favorite Sarah Young titles, including Jesus Calling and Jesus Always, in an audiobook version, and get it for free by trying audible.com. Check out a small sample of the Jesus Calling audiobook featured at the end of this podcast. To download an entire free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Jesus Again, that's audibletrial.com slash Jesus for your full, free audiobook. Now on to the second half of our show. Robert J. Morgan is the teaching pastor of the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville, Tennessee, where he has served for 35 years. He is a best-selling and gold medallion-winning writer with more than 35 books in print and more than 4 million copies in circulation in multiple languages. He is a writer for Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Points magazine and has had many articles published in other leading Christian periodicals. Robert shares a little bit about his early life and how he was inspired by Reverend Billy Graham to follow the road in his own life of preaching the gospel and teaching the truths of the Bible to as many people as he could.
3: My name is Robert J. Morgan, and I live here in Nashville. I grew up in East Tennessee in the mountains and the Appalachians and moved here in 1980 to be the senior pastor of a church. And now I'm the teaching pastor there. And also have the opportunity of writing and speaking and ministering in a variety of ways. And uh, I'm also a caregiver to my wife, Katrina, uh, who's uh, battling an illness. And we have a bunch of grandchildren we love, and so our lives are very busy. I grew up in a wonderful family. Uh, it was my dad and mom who were both school teachers. And then I was the oldest and my sister, Anne was born six years after I was. And because my parents were school teachers, they had the summers off, and we traveled a great deal. My father loved to travel. He grew up uh, way up in uh, the top of a mountain where when he was a young person, he never traveled anywhere, except maybe he walked to school and back. So when he got old enough to travel, he wanted to see the world, and he took us with him. And we just had a very wonderful family. We attended a great church uh, in East Tennessee. I grew up in a very... Christian environment with parents who love the Lord and read their Bibles and taught me the Bible. So I have sort of an idyllic uh, childhood growing up in the 1950s and early 1960s in a small little town in the middle of the Appalachians uh, in the mountains of East Tennessee on the western North Carolina border. Billy Graham was a hero of mine when I was just a boy because we would gather whenever he would have the televised crusades which was several times a year on television then uh, my whole family would always gather and it would be in black and white and Cliff Barrows would be there leading the choir and then Billy would get up and say the Bible says you know and have the and I drunk all of this in as a child and I thought this is the greatest preacher I would like to be like that one day I had a lot of problems especially during my uh, freshman year in college but my sophomore year of college Uh, was when I made a very life-changing decision to, as far as I know how, give everything that I had and was or ever would be to the Lord in full commitment, what we call back then full surrender. When I was in college my sophomore year, the young man across the hall said, why don't you go with me uh, to Asheville next weekend? I want to meet, I want to introduce you to a woman who uh, has meant a lot to me. So I said, all right, and we got in the car, and he drove me to Billy Graham's house. And uh, Billy was gone, but Ruth was there. And we spent a wonderful weekend with Ruth. I learned so much, not only that weekend, but on subsequent occasions. And then when I finished uh, at Wheaton, uh, then I spent some time working with uh, Dr. Graham and the Crusades. Now, uh, I didn't work personally with him; I was a gopher. You know, I just did whatever the Crusade officials needed to have done. There were a lot of airport runs and a lot of setting up meetings and a lot of making photostats and and being at the Crusade every night. And um, I remember one occasion I was on the platform because one of the guests who uh, had flown in for the Crusade, they were on the front row beside Dr. Graham, and they uh, uh, had to be taken to the airport. So they sent me uh, there on the platform near Dr. Graham, and I just thought, this is the greatest thing in the world, you know, and I watched him there as he preached, you know, I watched him from the back, which I'd never done, I'd always seen, seen him, you know, with his finger in the camera, uh, and I remember when he finished the sermon, uh, and I was taking the man that I was escorting down the steps, Dr. Graham came down the steps, and he looked at me, and he shook my hand, and it was trembling, And by the time he got to the end of the stairs, he nearly collapsed, and they had to help him. And he was a relatively young man back then. Uh, But the exhaustion of preaching in that stadium uh, was almost more than a human being could do. And they helped him in the car, and and he drove away. But he was back the next night as good as ever. Uh, But I learned so much through that experience, and I thought for a while, I want to stay with this organization. But then the Lord just let me know that he wanted me in the pastorate, and that I wouldn't be happy doing anything except pastoring. And so I left uh, um, the Billy Graham Association and went into the pastorate, but I have always cherished those times uh, uh, when I had that opportunity. Uh, I graduated from Wheaton Graduate School, and, and I thought, because I was in the mountains and there's like 10,000 churches up in those mountains, that one of them would need a pastor or would want me to be the pastor. Uh, So I graduated from Wheaton, and I started looking for a church to pastor before I got married in August. And no one invited me. Uh, No one wanted me. And so when Katrina and I were married in August, at the end of August, uh, I ended up getting a job at JCPenney's and and trying to support her that way. And we looked for a place uh, to serve. And for a solid year... I looked for churches to pastor, and there were twelve different churches that were interested in me. Every one of them turned me down. But on our first wedding anniversary, I began. We began pastoring a little church in Greenville, Tennessee, out in the country, a little stone church, and we were there for two and a half years, and it was a wonderful experience. The people were so gracious and supportive, and. uh, I just did my best to preach and take care of them, and they did their best to take care of us. And it was a, just a very good experience. Not every pastor begins with a good experience, but I really did. And then in 1980, we moved here to Nashville uh, to the church that I've been at now for uh, 38 years. And we just worked very hard. It was a church of uh, about 100, and over the years, we it grew from about 100 to about 1,000 It took a lot of work. I didn't mind working. The Bible says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it with all your heart enthusiastically as unto the Lord. And that was sort of my work ethic. And so uh, I would preach uh, expository uh, messages based on passages of the Bible as we came through them because I felt like that if you feed people who are in the pews with biblical truth, then they'll grow and you'll have a better church and I visited the sick, and I went to the homes where people were who had problems, and we just really worked. We raised our three girls and really have had, overall, a very good experience. Uh, In the pastorate, there are incredible stresses, and how we do church has changed a lot in these 40 years. Uh, And, you know, it's a, a struggle keeping up with the changes. Uh, that are taking place in church life and in society. But overall we've had a wonderful experience and we still are at the same church that we came to in 1980 and the people love us and we love them and so we're very grateful for that. My wife Katrina was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis 27 years ago. Um, For many years it wasn't truly debilitating, it was a little aggravating. Uh, She was on a cane, or she couldn't always walk real fast. Uh, And then she moved to a walker and then to a wheelchair. Um, In the last few years, it's gotten significantly worse. And this year, uh, we've had additional medical problems. She had a uh, ruptured uh, stomach ulcer, which created a hospitalization, which then has complications with her MS. Then she developed infections, and we've had a very difficult time. And my role as a caregiver has been, until now, probably more providing emotional support and limited physical support. Now I'm finding that she has just needs that are beyond what I can do in my own strength uh, or what I'm prepared to do, really, in my own strength. I'm not a nurse. Uh, Nursing doesn't come naturally to me. But the Bible does say I can do all things through him who infuses me with strength. Katrina and I wrote a book called The Strength You Need uh, on the great strength passages of the Bible because we find that we both need daily strength. And the last few weeks have been exceedingly difficult, Uh, but we just love each other. We trust the Lord. Uh, I try to joke a lot about it and keep the spirit light because she gets discouraged or depressed. Uh, I don't want to be flippant. But we try to keep a, a healthy cheerfulness uh, in our home. And we just take it one day at a time. Um, we I wasn't sure a month ago that she was going to make it through a surgery. Um, and so we uh, just prayed together. And I said, now Katrina, if you get to heaven before I do, there are one or two things I really need for you to ask the Lord about personally, because I need help with a couple of things. So will you remember that when you get to heaven? And it was that kind of frank conversation, and she said, I will, and we prayed, and, and she went on into the intensive care. She was not breathing well, but she pulled through that. Um, but there are enormous physical and emotional stresses to caregiving. But everyone at some time or another will either be a caregiver or a care receiver. And what I would say is that the principles that I've tried to write about with the strength you need, and in my book, Worry Less, Live More, on the peace that God gives and reclaiming the lost art of biblical meditation, these books have in large measure come out of our own personal struggles as we have found the truthfulness of the Scripture and the faithfulness of God to work for us, even on the most difficult days. In my own travels and life and in my marriage and in the ups and downs that I've had personally, because I battle uh, anxiety and, and worry and sometimes discouragement and depression like everybody else, nothing has helped me more than Scripture, memory and Biblical meditation. I learned to memorize Bible verses when I was a child in the public schools, which we could do back in the 1960s in the mountains, but also in Sunday school. And all through the years, I've tried to continue to memorize Scripture, just a verse or a passage here and there. Right now, I'm working on a passage in the book of Colossians. Uh, But when you have Scripture in your mind, then it becomes portable Bible study. You can think about it wherever you are. And Americans right now... Uh, particularly Christians in America, are afraid of the concept of meditation because it's been hijacked by Eastern religions and by the transcendentalists. But it was God's idea to begin with. And the Bible says, This book of the Word shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you will make your way successful, and then you will be prosperous. And all through the Bible it talks about the importance of being transformed by the renewing of our mind, and that happens as we meditate on Scripture. So out of my study of this whole subject I wrote, Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation, I want to teach people how to let the Bible circulate through their brains like water through a fountain, or like oil through a machine, or like blood through a heart. We've got to constantly be letting the Word of God, meditate and and circulate through our minds all the time. There is something about that that accelerates the transformation process and gives us a level of peace that we don't have anywhere else. The Bible says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And in Romans 8 it says that the mind, controlled by the flesh, is death and destruction, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And so I'll take a passage that I've memorized. Now you don't have to memorize the Bible to meditate on it. You can just open the Bible and read it and think about it and ponder it. But when you also have parts of it memorized in your mind, then you can think about it when you're in the shower, when you're bicycling, when you're walking or running. Uh, Many times I'll awaken in the night, And you know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, often you begin to worry. But I've trained my mind now, the moment I wake up, to begin quoting scripture. Just last night I woke up in the middle of the night and I was alarmed about something. But I started quoting Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade upon your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will preserve you from all evil. He will preserve your soul The Lord will preserve your coming in and your going out from this time forth and forever. Now, when you quote that at 3 o'clock in the morning, you are more likely to go to sleep because there is something about the power of Scripture that gives us calmness and a sense of God's presence. And so these are the things that I've tried to describe in very practical terms and in biblical terms in this book, Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. I want to reclaim biblical meditation for God's people. It's God's idea to begin with, and this is our greatest tool for growing and arriving at the peace and the joy and the sense of God's presence that he wants us to have. All through these years, the Lord has opened doors for me to do that through preaching and teaching and speaking at conferences and and at churches and at colleges and, and at corporate events. And I don't know what it is, I can't explain it, but thinking that I'm going to get on a plane or get in the car and go and I have the opportunity of sharing the greatest set of messages in the world, which are the truths of the Bible, with a group of people. I don't do it as well as Billy Graham. I don't do it as well as most people, but I love doing it. And I've had the opportunity of doing it in many parts of the world. The Bible is given to us not just to study academically, although the study of the Bible is the most fascinating thing we can do, but to personalize it and to think of it not just as a book, but as a letter from God to us. It is a personal communication from him. And so reading the Bible is a relational thing it's not just a routine it's not just a ritual but when we pray we're talking to God and when we read and meditate on his word he's thinking uh, of us and communicating to us with authoritative power so i think what Sarah Young has done here and Jesus Calling is the meditation and the personalization of scripture she has taken some precious passages and she has meditated through them until they have spoken to her and she has written down the significance of that message and that's the power of this little meditation book. It is a book that enables us to meditate our way through the scriptures of God and through the words that Jesus said and as we meditate on his words then we are strengthened by his voice and we develop a sense of his presence. I like this little one because it goes along with what we are saying. It's the passage from August 15. It says, I am the God of all time and all that is. Seat in me, not only in morning quietness but consistently throughout the day. Do not let unexpected problems distract you from my presence. Instead, talk with me about everything and watch confidently to see what I will do. Adversity need not interrupt your communion with me. When things go wrong, you tend to react as if you're being punished. Instead of this negative response, try to view difficulties as blessings in disguise. Make me your refuge by pouring out your heart in me, trusting in me at all times. And it reminds me so much of Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And that's a message I think we need every single day.
0: To read Pastor Morgan's tribute to Reverend Billy Graham, please visit the pastor's blog at robertjmorgan.com. You can get his book, Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation, everywhere books are sold. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we visit with best-selling author and speaker Anne Voskamp. Anne talks a little about the times in life that catch us by surprise, and how important it is to remember God's goodness, even when it feels like our circumstances are difficult.
2: Our scars, our brokenness, is what we sometimes want to hide and mask. Those scars identify us with Jesus' scars. Those are our courage, and, and they are our brave. And we, we don't hide them. We share them because it gives Christ all the glory, because by His wounds we are healed.
0: Do you love hearing great stories of faith each week via the Jesus Calling podcast? We want to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed to the Jesus Calling podcast, visit the Jesus Calling page at iTunes.com and hit the subscribe button. While you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell us how you feel about the show and what future guests you'd love to see. Your reviews and subscription help us share these stories of faith to more people who need the hope and encouragement of Jesus Calling. If you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.